Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you today, and we all have different stuff going on in our lives. We want to lay that at your feet right now. We pray, God, that you would um, help us to trust you with the different issues, the different trials, the different afflictions that we have in our life, uh, to know that you will walk with us, that you are present in those situations, that you are very near to us. And I pray, God, we would do as, as James talks about, and we would draw um, near to you, Lord. Let us draw near to you. We thank you that you are good and gracious, uh, that you say that you um, are delighted uh, to see your children, God, walk in your ways. Uh, bless us now, Lord, as we get into your word. Uh, give us eyes uh, to see and ears to hear. And let us um, be filled by your word today, Lord, for your glory. Amen. I want to talk um, kind of as my intro about uh, Jesus in the first century as a Jew. So picture yourself just for a minute as a first century Jew. The kids can head out for class. Um, you're a first century Jew. What scriptures do you have available to you? The Old Testament, right? You got the Old Testament. And that's what you're going to be learning from, reading from, hearing in the uh, synagogue each week, hearing proclaimed at the temple uh, each week. And here's Jesus, and, and that is what he uses many, many times when he instructs his people, when he instructs his disciples. In four words, he states over and over again, I mean, I, I like it, um, and it's these four words, have you not read? Have you not read? Let's look at just a couple places so we can uh, see that for ourselves. Look at Matthew chapter 12. In verse 1 he says, in Matthew 12, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat? nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now here's the thing. I mean, they had read, Right? I mean, have you not read? Who's he speaking to? It's the Pharisees who are criticizing him. Had they read it? Absolutely. I mean, they knew these stories backwards and forwards. Large portions of the Old Testament, they had memorized. So had they, have you not read? No, we've read, Jesus. So it's kind of a little bit of an insult, potentially, because he knows they've read it, but they had read it, but really not understood it. They had read it, but not really understood it. And Jesus is using the Old Testament here to give them instruction. What do they do with the instruction? They reject it, right? So one, this is just more of a, a, 
a side application. Hey, when we're reading it or when we're hearing the word preached to us, like it is possible for us to hear it, but not hear it. It's possible for us to hear it, but not understand the instruction that's being given. So we have to come, one, with right hearts whenever we're going to hear the word preached. We have to come with right hearts. Whenever we're going to sit down and have our quiet time, we have to come with right hearts to receive the instruction. All of us have had times where we can read and read and read from our Bibles and we don't get anything from it. That's not on God. We are reading God's Word. That's not on Him. That's on us. That's on us. Because we are hearing, we're reading, we're seeing, but we're not truly receiving. So we have to be careful because we don't want to be in a position of what these Pharisees were. I was thinking about it earlier as I was preparing this sermon, and there's probably many different categories you could put modern-day Pharisees in. But some of them, I would classify Pharisees today as liberal Christians. Because think about it. What did the Pharisees back in Jesus' time do? They misapplied the Word of God. They misinterpreted the Word of God, and they did it to their own selfish means. And what do we see today? We see liberal Christians today, they take and twist this word to mean what they want it to mean. Not what it says, but they want it, what they want it to mean. So you get these uh, people with more degrees um, than all of us combined in this room telling us what God's word doesn't say when it is plain as day what it does say. They have put themselves in the seat of Moses, so to speak, and are trying to interpret the word of God for us, and they are misinterpreting it over and over and over. And here Jesus is saying the same thing to his hearers, to his disciples, and even to the Pharisees. He's trying to give them right instruction. Look at Matthew 22. We'll see something similar. This time it's the Sadducees. Verse 23, the same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And they're like, ha, we got you, Jesus. But Jesus answered them, you were wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Again, did they know the scriptures? Yes, in one sense, right? I mean, did they know them? It's the Sadducees. They knew the scriptures. But Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. So you can, you can know this word, but not know it. You can have a, a, a knowledge of it and not know it. I had, I had professors that had degrees far more advanced than even some of my degrees. They claimed to know the Scriptures. They did not know the Scriptures. We have to be careful and make sure whatever God tells us in His Word is what we believe it is. Not what we want it to say, but what it actually is. And I'm going to talk about it in, in a few weeks more, but, you know, <clears throat> the fancy word is exegesis. That just means when we come to the text, we draw out what's there. Uh, the opposite is eisegesis. That means 
and it's G-E-S-I-S. It's not like Jesus, okay? Exegesis, G-E-S-I-S. It's, just a, uh, it's from the Greek. But eisegesis me- means we read into the text. So we have, an, and, and that's what's happening, even in, in parts of conservative Christianity. We're reading into the text things we want to be there. It's not there. And there's, there's, a, there's almost like a new term that's being coined. It's actually quite apropos called narcissus. Okay? It's kind of self-explanatory, right? Us being self-absorbed with ourselves, we read ourselves into the text. And what's Jesus saying for me today that I want him to say? Okay. All of that to say, um, Jesus goes on, You are wrong, verse 29, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he corrects their wrong thinking. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection, so he, he corrects them and he's like, oh, by the way, as for the resurrection of the dead, again, have you not read? He's like, yeah, you have read, but you've missed it. You've read it probably hundreds of times. And every single time you've missed it. Verse 31, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then look what happens in verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The crowd got it. But the so-called academics and elite, they didn't get it. So over and over you'll see Jesus say this, Have you not read? And when you think about it, the different events that Jesus alludes to or references in the uh, Old Testament, he does the creation of Adam and Eve, the murder of Abel, He references Noah's day and the corruption and the flood. He references Lot's day and the corruption and the fire. He references Lot's wife. He references the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He references Moses in the burning bush, Moses in the heavenly manna, Moses in the brazen serpent. He references David in the showbread. He references Solomon and the queen of Sheba. He references Elijah, a widow in the famine. He references Naaman in his leprosy. He references the murder of Zechariah. He references Daniel and the abomination of desolation, which actually is in 2 Thessalonians. He references Jonah and the fish and Jonah and the repentance of the Ninevites. And let me tell you, every time he references it, guess what? Every single Jew listening to Jesus reference these events believed these were actual historical events that happened. And so did Jesus. Not because he was like a good Jew, not because he didn't want to offend people, not because he didn't want to lose a following. Friends, Jesus was more than willing to lose a following. And he did lose disciples. He was willing to give hard words to people. And guess what? If Jesus is this great teacher, this great moral person, this great rabbi, guess what? He knew that his listeners believed these to be historical stories. And guess what? If he was going to set the record straight because it was wrong, he would have done that. He would have done it. That's what a great teacher would do. Correct misinformation. No, Jesus believed it. He believed it. Why? Because it's true. So if you you want evidence for the historicity of some of the Old Testament events, Jesus believed it. That's your evidence. If Jesus believed it, that should be good enough for us. And if he wanted to correct the record because it was wrong, he would have corrected the record. It would be deceitful, wrong, and sinful for this great teacher to let his believers believe wrong information. 
to believe something was true that was not true. Now, from Genesis to Jesus, there's like thousands of years, right? Right? Thousands of years. Yet he confirms the truthfulness and veracity of it over and over and over. And from Jesus to us is like, you know, ballpark 2,000 years, right? Friends, time doesn't affect truth. Time doesn't affect truth. If it was true during the time of Genesis, and then it's true during the time of Jesus, it's true today. So time doesn't affect the truthfulness of any matter. Time doesn't matter for a timeless truth. Part of this, I say, to have confidence in the Old Testament. But Jesus himself had complete confidence in it. He didn't qualify it. He didn't water it down. I mean, why would you quote it over and over and over and over and over and over again if you didn't believe it? That's what he does. And, and what does he quote all the time? The Old Testament. He's not like, oh, you know, last week I was reading this Jewish rabbi who wrote like 10 years ago this really great book. No. What does he quote? The Old Testament. That's what he quotes from. And he wants to minister to people. He was a teacher of the truth. Friends, if we want to be effective ministers of the truth, we have to know the truth. Do you know the truth? Now, I was trying to emphasize to my youngest son, Ethan, the other day, actually yesterday, the importance of everything I've kind of just shared and the importance of the New Testament and the importance of knowing it. We're, uh, of, of knowing it. We're reading through as a family uh, the New Testament. And so I was trying to encourage him, because, you know, because we were having a little conversation, and I was trying to encourage him about the importance of like letting God's Word just like infiltrate us. And so I told him, and I was praying the whole time I did this. But I, I, I said, you know, because he had his iPad near him, I'm like, open up your Bible app. I want you to pick any verse in the New Testament. Um, not the Gospels, only because there's, there's some repetition in there. But any, any verse in the New Testament besides the Gospels, I'm going to tell you what's bo- what book it's in. <laughs> and I said, and there's a good chance I'll know the chapter. So here's, here's the verse he chooses. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. And I was like, you're going you're to choose the greetings at the end of a letter to test me on that. I'm like, no, I'm not going to get that one. I was close. <laughs> but we did a couple others, okay? I had him do a couple others. I'm not going to tell you how I did. <laughs> and don't ask Ethan afterwards either. <laughs> But here's the thing. Um, The master swordsman practices his art for hours and hours and hours. And we are the swordsmen, and we've been given a sword. We need to practice with our sword. I mean, friends, uh, I mean, I, I swim in this thing. I live in this thing. I breathe in it. And, and I did that before I was a pastor. I did that even as a new believer. This, this is what I, I camped out in. Let's not reach the point where we think we've gleaned everything there is to glean. Okay. 
We've only, even myself, in all my years of study, have only begun to scratch the surface of some of the things that are there. When I'm getting my sermons ready each week, oftentimes I will find something new. I don't always share it, but I will find something new. Some of that stuff is just for me, as God given me and speaking to me through his word, okay? I don't always share those things. But the point is, we're just scratching the surface. There is much there. And we can scratch for a long time, and we will not get through scratching it. So let's make sure like, we have a continual intake of this thing. A continual intake. You know, if I'm not reading it, I'm reading about it. And if I'm not reading about it, I'm listening to it, or I'm listening to things about it. So it's a continual intake of the Word. And today we're going to talk about identity, and we have to be grounded in this to understand our identity. So look at first, or excuse me, Second Thessalonians. Man, I said First Thessalonians probably 500 times over the last year and a half, so... I'll probably mess up a couple more times. Look at 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to look at that those two words just for a moment. Our Father. There's different senses that this can be used. Really three. Sometimes we see this reference of God being a father used specifically in reference to Jesus. Well, that makes sense. That, I mean, that's his father in a unique way that the rest of us don't have. Look at Romans chapter 5. Uh, Romans chapter 15, pardon me. Verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it's uh, Jesus' relationship with the Father is specifically singled out as Jesus having God as his Father. Look at Second Corinthians 1. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is again. Who is he the God and Father of? Jesus. And we see it in a few more letters. Let's just look at two of them briefly. Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 3. There we see it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Again in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. So, so Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. 
that, that we don't have in that uniqueness. He is truly the Son of God, and there is only one Son of God. So there's a sense when, when we talk about uh, God as a Father, He's the Father of Jesus. There's also the sense that He's the Father of all creation. Look at Acts chapter 17. So this is Paul speaking at the Areopagus. And he's sharing with him. And we're going to pick it up in verse 26, Acts 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Okay, So God's offspring. So we get that idea of God being the father of, of all creation. But then we get something revealed to us that only comes from Jesus Christ himself once he comes here. A unique revelation given to us. Look back at some of the, the chapters we just looked at because <clears throat> I want you to see this in those same passages. So look back at Romans. Look at Romans chapter 1. Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God. And what does it say? Our Father. Our Father. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans later talks about the Father being Jesus' Father. But here, in the beginning, we're seeing that it's, it's our Father. Look at, we, we looked at 2 Corinthians, so go back to 2 Corinthians. Same place, 2 Corinthians 1. Again, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians says the same thing. Look there. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians as well. Grace to you, verse 2, and peace from God, our Father. This concept of God as the Father of believers is one of the distinctive teachings of the New Testament. Here's what one theologian said. Whereas the contemporary pagan world held its gods in fear or uncertainty, the Christian view of God's parenthood brings an unparalleled element of intimacy into human relationships with God. God is our Father. Where did this come from? It came 
from none other than Jesus Christ himself. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is is teaching his disciples how to pray. Look at verse 9. Pray then like this. And how does he start it? Our Father. Our Father. Friends, you might go, oh, that's kind of cool. No, it's more than cool. Because this was unheard of for anyone to pray like this as a Jew in the first century. In the century before that. In the century before that. In the thousand years before that. Jesus was bringing them into a deeper relationship and understanding of who God was. Now, is, is God used, and we get the imagery in the Old Testament, as God as Father? Yes. But do we have this term of our Father? No. Jesus is, is showing this to them. He's inviting us into that relationship. Think about it. All those passages we just read in the letters, it's always like our Father, and then he goes, and also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's inviting us into the relationship with the triune God. I mean, that should blow your mind. I mean, it blows my mind that we're invited into a fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Think of John 17, that they may be one as we are one, right? I mean, that's the idea that's going on. And think about in John 5, when, when, the, when Jesus is like, oh, my Father, and everyone's like, oh, they freak out. And they, what do they do? They pick up stones. They pick up stones. You don't walk around back then saying, my, this is my father, he's my father. But Jesus did. Now, he had the exclusive right to do that, but then what does he do with that exclusive right? He invites his disciples to share that with him. That's amazing. You have a relationship with God himself. So much so that he's not just, he's not just God, which he is, but he's your father. He is your father. And that pales in comparison to the greatest of the greatest of the greatest of earthly dads. So whether you've had an amazing, awesome dad, still pales in comparison. If you had an awful dad, guess what? You have an amazing, awesome, heavenly father that you can always depend on, you can always go to, who will never leave you, who will never let you down. You have a father who loves you. Receive that love. So what, what God is doing for us in this passage back in 2 Thessalonians, friends, he is showing us our identity. He's showing us our identity. We're children. We are children. Children of God. Look at John chapter 1. Verse 12, John 1, But to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. All right, you trust in Jesus, guess what? You become a child of God. Does it say uh, slave of God there? No. Does it say servant of God? No. Does it say friend of God? No. You got the right to be a child of God. And if you're seeing yourself any other way, primarily, then you're not understanding rightly your relationship with God. You should primarily see Him as a father. Primarily. Yes, you can be a friend, and you are. Yes, you are a slave, and you are. Yes, you are a servant, 
and that's what you are. But primarily, son. Primarily. See God through that lens if you want to understand him rightly. If you want to understand why afflictions and troubles come, you have to see him through that lens. That's the, that's the biblical lens. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Verse 1, 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called what? Children of God. Okay? Again, not slaves of God or servants of God or friends of God. What's the, what's the kind of love he has? That we're children. That he calls us children. That is a very intimate term to use. He's our Father. He's not just the Father, but He is our Father. And the love. John's trying to explain to these, these early believers, these young believers, like, you, you want to understand what kind of love this is, friends? Let me, let, me, let me tell you what kind of love it is. It's the love that a father has for a child. You've been adopted into the kingdom. Then look what it says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Okay. So when we talk about our identity, honestly, without even realizing it for us, you've probably read these beginnings of these letters that I just read over and over again. Paul's grounding their identity in the triune God. So it might be some formulaic greeting, which I don't think it is. Paul's not bound to greet people in some formulaic way. The Holy Spirit's not bound to stick to uh, conventions of letter writing in the first century uh, times. No. Paul's given us a foundation for who we are, our identity. And Jesus invites us into that relationship. Look at 2 Corinthians. It's encapsulated quite well by Paul. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. And what do new creations do? That's not a no trick question. They act new, Right? I mean, all I have to do is keep reading for the answer. It's just like high school, you know. Eventually the answer comes up in the textbook. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, our identity is important. I don't care if you've been a believer for a week or a year or 20 years or 50 years. Who we are is key. God wants to shape our identity and see that it is grounded in none other than God himself. Look at Colossians. Colossians 3. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Did you know you've died? Doesn't say you will die, you might die, you could die. No, you have died. If you're a believer, you're dead. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Galatians says something similar, but I want you to see it for yourself. Look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. So are you alive? No. (laughs) You are alive, but you're not. Right? It's true. Because you're alive in Christ, but you've died. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what does he say? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, right? So what does God do? He's got to save us. He's got to save us. What can a dead man do? Nothing. He's got to save us. And what does he do then? Ah, finally, like now you're dead. I've regenerated you, but you're dead. And now, yes, now I can get to work, he says. Because you've been moved out of the way. I've hidden you, your life in Christ. What Christ has, you get. That's an amazing thing. This is what we would call union with Christ. You ever read in, in, in the New Testament and over and over again, you're like, it says in Christ, in Christ. There's sometimes just randomly, like at the end of a sentence, in Christ. Like, what's that doing there? Because it's talking about union with Christ. And, and people have trouble, uh, I did at, <clears throat> at the time, to understand this fully, the union with Christ. But these verses are what is showing it. That you have been placed into Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Because of that, you no longer live. You're living, but the life you're living is for God, not for yourself. It's union with Christ. So those two words, in Christ, when you see them in the New Testament, I mean, if you started circling them, you'd have circles all over your New Testament. Circles all over the place. But those are two precious words because it is your union with Christ that gives you everything. If you don't have the union with Christ, you don't get any of it. You have to be united with him. You have to be. It's the union with Christ that all the blessings and riches and even salvation itself come. You think you got salvation apart from Christ? No. You got to be in Christ. You got to be in him. So it's the union with Christ. That's Our identity grounded in Christ, grounded in not just the Father, but our Father. Our identity is grounded in none other than the triune God. How is this possible? We're back to the second verse of 2 Thessalonians, the grace and peace. Notice, turn back there. Grace to you and peace. Where's it coming from? 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace, right? Unmerited favor. The grace. We're saved by grace through faith. The grace that saves us. Where is it coming from? It says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and ourselves. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace is coming. We got the grace and we get the peace. Peace with God. True peace. We're not at enmity with Him. So the life that we have, it starts with our Father and Jesus, but guess what? It also continues because we need the grace and the peace continually coming from both of them. Friends, we got to stop buying what the world is selling when it comes to this subject of identity. Let God define who you are. Okay? Not your passions, not your emotions, not your desires. Don't let them string you on. Not your GPA, your ACT score, your degrees, your athletic ability, your lack of athletic ability. Whether you do manual labor, whether you do mind labor, whether you can work on cars, whether you can't, whether you're a geek, whether you're popular, none of those things should define you. They shouldn't. You let them sometimes, but you shouldn't. Your identity comes from God himself. Listen, uh, Richard Cameron, some pronounce it Cameroon, he was one of the covenanters, a leader Uh, He was the leader of the Covenanters in Scotland. I I won't give you the whole backstory, but it was sort of a resistance movement of Christianity. He was known as the Lion of the Covenanters. He was killed in battle at age 32. And guess what the opposition did? They cut off his head and his hands. And they were on their way to display it at the prison, you know, impale it so that everyone could see it, this leader that they had finally killed. But on the way, guess where they stop? They stop at a Tobuth jail, where his father was being held. And they showed it to him. And they asked him, do you know them? Friends, the heart is desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. And the world is wicked. And, and is that what you want defining you? Is that what, who you want defining you? Is that, that's wickedness. That's wicked. No. Let, let God himself, let his word define who you are. Let your worth come from him. None of those things that I, that I mentioned, let it come from him and from him alone. All those things, empty, 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 empty promises. They will never fulfill. Never. And, and the high Christology that, that Paul lays out from, from, for us here, we saw it in 1 Thessalonians we're going to see it here in 2 Thessalonians. But the high Christology we see, what do I mean when I say high Christology? It just means like the exalted view that Paul presents to us of Jesus. In one sense, it really shouldn't astound us because we, we have and should have an exalted and high view of Jesus. But, but he lays it out pretty plainly. We can miss bits of it. That's why I'm here to make sure you don't miss it. But we can miss bits of it. <clears throat> and let me just give you one example that can be easily overlooked. Look back at verse 2. <clears throat> that word from, y'all ought to circle that word. Because it's grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of the, some of the English majors out there, uh, you might not say from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wanted to um, 
make it clear that there's kind of two separate things going on there. In Greek, you'd use the Greek word twice. Kind of makes sense. Here, the Greek word for from, little preposition, is only used once. You're like, oh, what's the big deal about that? Well, the prepositional phrase added to this opening greeting is noteworthy for the way both divine persons function grammatically as a double object of a single preposition. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Paul has basically just, just juxtaposed the Father and the Son together and their responsibilities and their duties. They've been joined together here. You'd expect Paul to repeat the Greek word to make it clear to the Thessalonians, well, there's, there's God over here and there's Jesus over here. Nope. Doesn't do it. Why? Because Jesus is God. That, and, and let's go a little bit further here. That the apostle does not feel the need to explain or justify this not only, suggests he, or not only shows us he has a high Christology, which would have been an important part of his missionary preaching, but, but he is writing to these new believers and he doesn't even have to explain it to them. Why? Because they already know and have this high Christology of who Jesus is. These are weeks, at most months old believers and he's already instructed them and he can make a, a reference like this that they would have caught in the Greek that we can miss in the English, but they would have caught it and, and Paul thinks nothing of it when he's saying it in one sense. Obviously, he means a whole lot by saying it. But it's just he's just writing it. And the Thessalonians are just reading it. And he doesn't have to explain, oh, by the way, yeah, Jesus is God. And, and both these things, grace and peace, they actually come from him. And, and no. That, that's important. And, and, and let's go even further. This is Paul, like Paul, just years earlier, as a Jew, wouldn't even breathe the name of Yahweh. Wouldn't even think of saying it. And yet here he is writing it and putting Yahweh and Jesus together, not just in the same sentence, but as part of the same phrase and prepositional phrase. Oh, and guess what? He does this quite a bit. Quite a bit. But just in 1 Thessalonians, I know we looked at it a whole lot, but let's just go back and, and pick some of the, these things up. Because it is important to realize that the Father and the Son are together. They are together. All right? And we should have a high Christology. And there should be no doubt by anyone how clear the Trinity is clearly seen in the Scriptures. I mean, we've got like 10 or 15 verses you can easily go to. But man, over and over again, this stuff is here. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1. Yes, I mean 1 Thessalonians. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, same breath he's mentioning both of them. Look at chapter 3. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. We spent some time a while back looking at that. I mean, it's a prayer. He's praying to both of them for them to do this for the Thessalonians. Look at chapter Chapter 5. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1. We'll look at just a few. 
We looked at verse 2. It's actually in verse 1 as well. Verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I mean, over and over again, it's not just the, the books of Thessalonians. I mean, you see this all the time. It's like God and Jesus are mentioned in the same breath. Now, would you really do that with someone who is just a man? No. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. I don't even know how people can come to the conclusion that Jesus is not God. To me, the New Testament really starts to fall apart and not make much sense. You just go along and be like, Jesus, and just whenever it says that, try doing that sometimes. Like, Jesus, who is only a man. Like, he's doing stuff that only God can do. Giving out grace and peace? Come on. If they're like, oh, oh, John over there, he's going to give you some grace and peace. I'm like, I don't want any John's grace and peace. Right? I mean, y'all can't do nothing in terms of grace and peace. You can exhibit it, you can walk in it, but in terms of giving it to me... Not in terms of like I sinned against you when I need it, but I mean like real God's grace. Can any of you give God's grace? No. Only God himself can give true saving grace. Yet Jesus can too. Because he's God. And he can dispense the grace as well. That's why sometimes it's like, well, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, sometimes Jesus is like, I have the power to lay my own life down and raise it back up again. And then, and then it says, and the Father will raise me back up again. And then it even says, the Spirit will raise me back up. Well, who's doing the raising? They all are. Because they're God. This is important for our Christology, for our understanding, and for our identity. We are invited into that relationship with the triune God. Here's what one author says. That such a construction could be used without comment not only implies the writer's belief in the deity of Christ, but also takes the reader's acknowledgement of it for granted. Brothers and sisters, the Father is essential to our life. And the Son is just as essential. And the Spirit is just as essential. Where do we ground our identity? In God Himself, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Do not buy what the world is offering you. It's like, it's like a nice plate of warm brownies, if you like brownies. Okay? It's got the powdered sugar sprinkled on top. You know, they look so good. They're, they're warm, like fresh out of the oven. They look so good, but they're made out of dog poop. Okay? And yet, people feast on that and think it's great. It might look good, but it isn't. So, the one who made us gets to define us. And the one who made us gets to tell us what we are. And the one who made us gets to tell us whose we are. Find your identity and God, and God alone. That's where it's grounded. It's not just where you start. It is where you start, but it's not just where you start. It's where you continue. And every single letter just about in the New Testament, it grounds us there. It gives us that reminder. Every time you read that, it should be a reminder. Yes, I I am in Christ. I am in Christ. And He is mine, and I am His. And that is how I'm going to walk. 
I could give a rip about what the world says. Someday you're going to be at a place, friends. It's going to be a dark, lonely place. And you're going to have to remember this truth. You will have to remember this truth. And you'll have to make a decision based on this truth. How you're going to walk it. How you're going to live it out. Rely on the truth of how God has revealed himself to us. That is our hope. That we have what we have comes from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our, our identity is in you. God, I pray for people here who don't understand that, don't know that, don't realize that. Supernaturally reveal that to them now and show it to them and make it a reality in their life because it is a reality. And for those that might not know you as Father, as our Father, give them, Lord, a saving faith today. Let them trust in you. Show them your sweetness and your goodness and that you want to adopt them and call them a child of God. Father, we thank you that you are a God who redeems, who cleanses, who makes us whole, who takes the old, gets rid of it, and has a new creation. You, you are the creator. We thank you, Lord, that you create in us a clean heart, dipped by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, help, help, help us believers here grasp this truth more and more and help us to see ourselves, to define ourselves, Lord, by what you say and by who we are and by whose we are. We are yours, Father. We thank you that you've claimed us, that you've bought us at a very expensive price, the price of your own son, and you redeemed us and you call us your own, we are grateful, and we love you. Amen.